Welcome back to Feminism, Fascism and the Future. I'm Alison Seeger. And I'm Laurie Essig. So Laurie, before we start this podcast, we need to come up with some music. I've picked out a few. You tell me what you think, all right? All right. All right, first one. It's called The Sounds of Mother Goddess. What do you think? Definitely not. Definitely not, okay. Okay. How about Political Digest? Uh, no. You don't like this one? I'd like to dance to it. Yeah, it's kind of groovy, isn't it? Yeah, all right. Okay, I'm going for this one then. Mood Trap in London, because that's my hometown. I can live with that. You can live with that? Yeah. Shall we start off with this one then, and then next week? We'll find something better. Brilliant. All right, off we go. Welcome back to Feminism, Fascism and the Future. I'm Alison Seeger. And I'm Laurie Essig. In the first episode, we told you that the anti-gender ideology movement is spreading all over the world. We hope we scared you a little because this movement is scary. Anti-gender ideology is against women's rights, LGBTQ rights and civil rights. And it's also against democracy. That's why we call this movement fascist because it is willing to take power by any means necessary, whether that's rigging an election, staging a coup d'etat, or using hatred of trans kids to ignite a populist movement. In this episode, my colleague Catherine Wright and I talk with scholars studying the global anti-gender movement. They explain how the movement started in the Catholic Church and then spread into right-wing populist politics in Russia. Let's start with how the movement began. My name is Agnieszka Graf. I live in Warsaw. I work at the American Studies Center at Warsaw University. I'm the author of a number of books. Most relevant to our conversation today is a book I published uh, last year with my co-author Elżbieta Korolczuk which is called Anti-Gender Politics in the Populist Moment. And it's a monograph on what we call the global anti-gender movement. And it's it's our contribution to a growing uh, body of research on this new conservatism. So what is this uh, anti-gender movement or anti-gender ideology movement? Could you describe it for our listeners? It is a um, conglomerate or coalition or network of organizations that have sprung up in the last two decades, uh, which are ultra-conservative, usually religious, but often using um, secular language, which are connected by uh, the opposition to what they call gender ideology. They kidnapped the word uh, gender from gender studies and uh, the the post-second wave uh, feminist culture and um, re-signified it to mean awful things in a variety of areas, uh, basically disorder, danger, chaos in the realm of kinship, uh, reproductive rights family. So they they are um, a new version of what used to be called the uh, family values movement in the United States. And the difference is that they are global. 
that they are connected to each other, that they are funded from shady sources, some of which are from Russia, but uh, there are also many other sources, including American ultra-conservative groups and networks. So this is a very well-funded effort. What, what used to puzzle scholars, but I think is no longer a puzzle, is, there, is the, this peculiar usage of the word gender. But what, what makes this a fascinating research area is that depending on where you go, the emphasis is different. So for instance, in Spain, the, the, the groups that operate in this way tend to focus on violence against women, and they resignify it as domestic violence, and they, they're obsessed with this idea that men are being falsely accused of violence. In France, uh, Manif Portus has focused mostly on the, the new kinship arrangements that have to do with gay marriage and the new legal solutions that enable, for instance, lesbians to have children through IVF. So they have th this whole discourse about children needing both father and mother. Uh, in Poland, uh, which is where we based most of our research and participant observation, it's basically good old homophobia, although recently it has been revamped to, into transphobia, which is, of course, what's going on in the States, um, that, that trans rights are the main target, in part because gay rights have become something that most people support. And what is always on the table, but sometimes more and sometimes less explicitly so, is the idea that abortion is is murder and needs to be banned. But depending on where you go, they will either say this explicitly, as they have been doing increasingly in the United States, and, and especially since Roe v. Wade was, was withdrawn. Um, but, in, but in other cases, like in Sweden, for instance, these groups will use arguments from um, freedom of conscience, making this, these legal solutions, for instance, for midwives to refuse to take part in abortions based on their conscience. So they're very smart in shaping their arguments and their legal strategies to match the local cultural and legal context. They're, they're just much smarter than, than what used to be the anti-feminist movements in, let's say, in the United States. Phyllis Schlafly or Anita Bryant, whom we compared to some of these strategies, they're really quite quaint and naive compared to these folks. The, the identity of the movement was was pretty strongly attached to the Catholic Church, and rightly so, if you're interested in history. The idea that gender is evil, that it's a culprit, that it's the, the messenger of modernity and anathema to the Catholic Church, this has a pretty long history that goes back to Beijing, 1995, Mexico, you know, the big conferences on women's rights that in the mid-90s started using the word gender. And so kind of, um, you know, changing from let's protect women's rights against sexism to a much broader way of thinking about gender, which we also know from gender studies. This concept that nations are responsible for protecting women's rights was a relatively new idea in the 1990s. When Hillary Clinton spoke at the 1995 Beijing Conference on Women, her words were considered pretty radical. If there is one message that echoes forth from this conference, let it be that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights once and for all. And the Catholic Church at the time reacted uh, with uh, documents about the gender agenda. And in fact, the, the origins of this, um, of this new way of thinking of conservatism also originated in the United States. There was this woman called Dale O'Leary. I was quite fascinated with her for a while, who apparently made a huge impression on the Pope at the time. 
Dale O'Leary wrote one of the first books that convinced religious conservatives that the real enemy is gender ideology. The book, The Gender Agenda, was published a couple of years after O'Leary attended the Beijing conference. For O'Leary, the talk of gender at the conference was part of the hidden agenda by feminists to destroy the traditional roles of men and women. O'Leary said, I observed that the UN is inhabited by people who believe that what the world needs is the elimination of the differences between men and women. O'Leary was also really upset by what she saw as the UN's encouragement of homosexuality. These people promote homosexuality and sex education and encourage sexual experimentation among children and teach them how to get contraception and abortions that homosexuality is normal, and that men and women are the same. Like O'Leary, the Vatican saw the attempts to insert gender into United Nations documents as a threat to the traditional order of things, and began to speak out. In 2001, Pope John Paul II declared that misleading concepts concerning sexuality and the dignity and mission of the woman are driven by specific ideologies on gender. In 2002, the Vatican's Council for the Family asserted that, quote, a feminist ideology known as gender has led to a misunderstanding of the complementary difference between man and woman. Even Pope Francis, who's been progressive on many issues, sees gender ideology as a real threat. Hello, I'm Nick Wiley. Today's May 1st, 2023, the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker. Here are your latest church militant headlines. During a three-day apostolic trip to Hungary, Pope Francis spoke out against gender ideology in an address to civil authorities in the capital city of Budapest. The pontiff said, this is the nefarious path of ideological colonization, which eliminates differences, as in the case of so-called gender culture. The Pope also spoke out against abortion and praised Hungary's pro-family policies, effective in reversing population decline in the thousand-year-old Christian country. As Professor Graf pointed out, O'Leary's work had a huge impact on the Catholic leadership, but political leaders weren't really paying attention to gender in the 1990s. I was among the founders of the gender studies in Poland in the late 90s. And in a lot of Eastern European countries, nobody thought gender was political at the time. We actually benefited from that because we were doing, you know, feminist research under the banner of gender. It was just something Western, theoretical and safe. And then suddenly around 2012, gender was worse than feminism. Gender was, was the thing chasing children down the street. We had tabloids in Poland discussing the dangers of gender. We have some photographs in our book for, uh, taken at anti-gender rallies. You would have uh, parents of small children with banners featuring a bomb and uh, the word gender, right? So suddenly it, it went mainstream and it became a rallying point for a populist uh, discourse which associated gender and all the associated evils with the elites. So the, the, this new rhetoric, it wasn't theological, it was political and it was populist in the sense that conservatism was positioning itself as a defender of ordinary people. Can you tell us how it's different from early backlashes against LGBTQ and feminist movements? It's a different language. It's an ultra-conservative language. 
but it describes the same thing that leftists have long been describing as the withdrawal of the welfare state, or in broader terms, as neoliberalism. So our argument um, is that the anti-gender movement is a populist movement. It's right-wing populism. And that is precisely what makes it different from earlier versions of backlash. Earlier versions of backlash tended to be, especially in the United States, unabashedly pro-free market. So they were going hand in hand with neoliberalism. And the version that we get now, especially in Europe, is actually a critique of neoliberalism. It's a conservative critique or reactionary critique, whichever word you want to use. So this movement is different because it's not just anti-gay or anti-feminist like earlier movements, but it's populist. It claims to represent regular people against the global elites who run everything. And it's often violent and anti-democratic, which is where it strays into fascism. If most people support gender equality, these movements have to be anti-democratic to get into power. And as we know, all fascist movements create an internal enemy who is responsible for everything that goes wrong. For the Nazis, it was the Jews. For the anti-gender ideology movement, the enemy is a mix of LGBTQ persons, feminists, immigrants and migrants. And of course, it also continues to blame Jews for all the problems of this moment. That's why the white supremacist protests in Charlottesville in 2017 also targeted Jews. What we are seeing since we started the research around 2013 is that they are increasingly willing to engage in violence and to claim that violence is okay. And that is, of course, um, a cornerstone of fascism, that it re-invites uh, violence into politics, claiming that um, dem democratic deliberation is actually a form of decadence, that it is not just populist, but actually actively anti-liberal. They basically believe that liberal democracy has lived its, its days and that a more robust political system is necessary in order to defend the ordinary people against the, the onslaught of decadence, foreignness, immigration, gender, whatever the enemy might be. It's always powerful, dangerous, and um, defending ourselves against this enemy uh, requires violence. And the figure of an evil that needs to be pushed away is, of course, central to how uh, both Italian and, and German fascism functioned at the time that figure was the Jew. And if you look at the history of European anti-Semitism, it has elements that are very strongly gendered. And that's what I looked at in my research in order to understand why it sounds so familiar to someone, and I am a Polish Jew. And, and the reason it looks so familiar is that it's the same discourse. So Jews were seen as effeminate. They were seen as incapable of sexual self-restraint. Jewish women were seen as supersexual. Uh, Jewish men were seen as decadent, effeminate, but also um, incapable of monogamy. And of course, they were accused of kidnapping children and you know doing evil things to them, which which 
tended to function as the justification or or even the call for pogroms. And these sets of ideas, this association of ethnic foreignness with decadence of a certain kind, and also the idea that we're talking about a group that has taken over the media. This is where the decadent homosexual and the decadent Jew meet in some of these ideas. So the argument is that in some ways, gender as a category replaces Jew in a fascist discourse. But in other ways, the anti-gender movement is also anti-Semitic and uses a lot of coded anti-Semitic language and tropes to speak about gender as the enemy. Professor Graf wants us to be aware that this movement is not just accidentally anti-Semitic, but purposefully so, in a way that ties the figure of the evil Jew with corrupting gender ideology, both of which threaten our children and the future. And she wants us to be aware that the way to fight this populist fascism is with a feminist movement that is also populist. So what we argue is that feminism, this new wave of feminism, sometimes referred to as the fourth wave, is also a populist movement. And by that, we don't mean that it's authoritarian or silly or stupid. No, we mean that it uses this frame of um, we the people against them the elites, and it goes back to politics of emotions in ways that were more or less abandoned or forgotten by feminism through the 90s and the the first decades of of the 21st century. And you can see it. You can you you can see it in the streets. In in Poland, we've had these three waves of protests. The Polish opposition is calling this one of the biggest anti-government demonstrations in decades. Up to half a million people on the streets of Warsaw saying no to the government of Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki, who's dismissed the protest as a circus. They also denounced President Andrzej Duda, blaming his PIS or Law and Justice Party for the rising cost of living. Many carried EU flags. I'm fed up with the rulers. I want to live in a European country that's free and democratic, where minority rights and women's rights are respected, where the church does not rule. I'm marching for my daughter and my granddaughter and all my relatives. It's an extremely angry language, mobilizing women in their capacity as ordinary people. What you need is an opposition that will take feminism seriously and allow it to be equally furious, right? Not feminist NGOs during, you know, doing their little legal reforms, but an opposition that will take angry women on board as serious political players. And I think that's happening in a lot of places, that these issues are taking center stage when the left or liberals win elections. In Poland, for the first time since 1989, the opposition has actually listened to women. And uh, Tusk, who is the leader of the opposition party, has promised uh, legalizing abortion, like fully legalizing it. We have to be building coalitions between radical feminist social movements. By that, I don't mean the, the kind of radical feminism that has been attacking trans rights, but, but you know, serious political feminism. And uh, whoever in a given context is taking on these authoritarian groups. I think we're learning to do this. We're learning not to dismiss gender as just culture. It's not just culture. It's, it's the playing field where democracy is being fought for. We used to shy away from melodrama. 
And I think this this new wave of feminism is using emotions in these ways, and and it needs to. You don't um, conquer a populist agenda with liberal democratic argumentation, right? And I think that the, the battle and that is going to take place in Poland in the next elections is going to be a final battle for democracy. Newsflash! Newsflash! Okay, listeners, we finally have something hopeful to tell you. When Professor Groff gave us this interview in the summer of 2023, it looked like the Law and Justice Party was going to keep its hold on power and continue to use anti-gender rhetoric to rile up the masses. But the opposition movement that formed from feminist activism was able to get enough votes in October 2023 to push the Law and Justice Party out of power. That's such good news. Yeah, at least in Poland, and at least for now. But the anti-gender ideology movement continues unabated elsewhere, like in Russia. If you think of the way the anti-gender rhetoric has been used by Putin, I mean, we're talking about mass murder. We're not talking about intellectual debates over, you know, differences between men and women. So, So these are really scary people. Some of the most interesting conversations I've had on how these issues interact with big politics have been with Ukrainians. For instance, the way that gay rights have gone from a marginal issue to a an issue that is proudly worn by soldiers and not just, you know, people who happen to be gay and soldiers, but just Ukrainian soldiers fighting Putin's invasion as a sign of Europeanness, as a sign of the, you know, dream of democracy. So um so the rainbow flag interestingly you know went from being a sexual minority symbol to a symbol of democracy in the part of of the world where I live and that of course includes the trans rights flag as well the broader wave of history is that you know Putin is our enemy and trans and lgbtq rights are part of the new democratic package that people like Ukrainians fighting for their homeland believe in So now we've reached a pretty interesting moment. Putin's war in Ukraine has turned many people away from the war and gender ideology. Even people who previously thought of Putin as a savior of traditional civilization. Since the war in Ukraine, anti-LGBTQ politics are now firmly associated with anti-democratic regimes. In order to find out more, we turn to one of the world's leading experts on the use of anti-gay propaganda in Russian politics, Alexander Kondakov. Some people call me Sasha. That's very common. Actually, in Russia, they call Alexander Sasha. And I work in University College Dublin in Ireland. I'm an assistant professor there. Uh, my work is all about, you know, queer theory, uh, anti-queer violence, LGBT rights. And basically, uh, it's uh, usually focused on what's happening in Russia. This is where I'm from originally, and so um, yeah, focusing on on what's happening there. In in fact, uh, indeed, I wrote a book published last year. It's called Violent Affections, and it has many different topics. But I think most importantly, it's about how power works and about the this emotional aspect of power, especially in relation to how politicians use anti-queer, anti-LGBT argument to 
legitimize their uh, non-democratic authority, their non-democratic ways. And Russia served as a very good example of that, even though this kind of thing is not limited to Russia only. This is so interesting because it's not limited to Russia. But I do feel like Putin did it first, right? I mean, he was the one who set the example of how to take this anti-LGBT, but also anti-gender ideology, use it to shore up his support or his base of supporters. So I'm wondering, can you think back on when you first started noticing Putin using this rhetoric and how that history played out in Russia, how he did it? Putin is definitely one of the earliest and one of the most successful uh, politicians who used anti-gender rhetoric uh, to amass people's support. And I think he actually started more with um, anti-feminist kind of uh, discourse in, in the beginning of 2000s, strengthening of heteronormativity and heterosexual privilege more uh, generally in his policies and in his politics in Russia that centered on family values and, and family more generally understood in a very narrow way as a heterosexual family uh, of a man and a woman and they're preferably two or three uh, kids of also different gender. So uh, that was kind of his uh, starting point in his policies and kind of paving the road to more overt and more articulate homophobia and transphobia and, and all other kinds of misogyny that you can only imagine. That is so obvious today, right? But that started with more subtle policies of putting these traditional family values at the center, at the core of governmental politics and, and policies. Uh, literally, you know, paying people for children, you know, this, this kind of stuff. So not something too complicated. And then uh, somewhere in the parallel, so I, I don't want to give too much credit to an individual, Vladimir Putin himself. It's a more general kind of trend, maybe an institution, maybe a social process that he is just part of. And there are many more people who uh, contributed to it and, and who kind of worked towards the uh, goals, ends that, uh, that Putin's government introduced and, and pursued lately. But he's not the only one. And one of the examples here can, again, be an example from Russia, where, for example, this um, gay propaganda law uh, was first introduced in, in 2006, right? So quite, quite early and seven years before it was introduced on the federal level. It was introduced in a, in a, in a region that's, um, it's called Rizan. Uh, that's a you know very small region, and and many people didn't even know that the gay propaganda ban existed there, but it was introduced quite quite early there, and, and I think Putin has nothing to do with it. Maybe uh, American evangelicals have more to do with it than uh, than Putin. American evangelicals like Scott Lively regularly travel to Russia, starting in the nineteen nineties to spread the gospel of anti-gender ideology. Here is Lively in Russia. 
The gay movement is an evil institution. That's goal. The goal of the gay movement is to defeat the marriage-based society. So Kondakoff is pointing out the influence of American evangelical Christians on these first anti-gay laws, like the one in Rizan in 2006. That was the first instance of uh, homophobic legislation introduced on the Russian uh, territory, uh, legislation that is now known as uh, gay propaganda bans, and that eventually arrived to the level of federal legislation in 2013. And then you look at the parallel kind of development uh, somewhere in the regions of Russia where gay propaganda bans were uh, introduced as early as in 2006. And then you see how these two ideas kind of come together in 2010s uh, and reach the federal level at the moment when the Kremlin and Putin personally needs those kinds of policies more than ever at the moment of crisis, of political crisis, and especially crisis of democratic legitimacy when people were against his uh, power and his return to, to the presidency. That's when this all kind of resonated in the federal policy there. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because I think what you're trying to get us to think about is how this isn't ever one fascist no matter how good that fascist is at propagandizing. Yeah, but rather it's a movement, right? And and this anti-gender, anti-gender ideology movement, which as you correctly point out, is really a religious movement. And, and in particular, American evangelicals and the Catholic Church pushing this idea, you know, that the real threat to the future is feminism and homosexuality as, as, as related threats, right? As, as against the family, as something that will bring down civilization. And I think the other thing that happened during those years is a pussy riot, right? There are protests in the cathedral, which was um, 2011, I think. So, so that's a kind of, there are these things going on, these protests against Putin, the pussy riot protests, the successful passage of the, of the gay propaganda law. And so all these things are kind of happening together. And of course... The Putin regime just, just sees that it's possible to manipulate them in all these ways that shore up their base. But then the feeling, especially among religious individuals, that the threat to the future was gender and some sort of shaking up of traditional gender and sex roles, that was there because of the evangelical movements that also were in conversation with orthodox movements. And these were, you know, in conversation with the Catholics, right? So, so that's where it starts to begin. But... But Putin has been so successful at using it, and, and, and you more than anyone know that history. So, so how has the Putin regime, or, or I guess I should say politicians in Russia, I, I wonder if you could, for our listeners, just outline some of the highlights of the way that, that this anti-gender, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric has been used over the past 10 years or so you know, by, by the regime? I think that the obvious thresholds are uh, 2013 with the introduction of the first gay propaganda ban on the federal level. And that came as a sort of remedy for political situation uh, back then. So Putin came to power in Russia in 1999. And he became the president in 2000. And according to the Russian constitution back then, it was possible to 
uh, have two consecutive uh, terms uh, each four years, right? So he served as a president for two terms, and in in 2008, uh, he became a prime minister. This was the time, it was 2011, when Putin said, I'm coming back, I want another term, right? That was unconstitutional, that was absolutely, you know, illegitimate thing to even say, but he was going to do it, right? And, and he was going to uh, push forward no matter what. And there was a lot of protests. So Pussy Riot is, is definitely part of this protest. They, they introduced a, a very important uh, kind of feminist dimension of resistance to, to Putinism because back then it was already clear that his power is based on misogyny and, and homophobia. The members of the Pussy Riot Collective took over one of Moscow's most important cathedrals, Christ the Saviour, in February of 2012 and asked the Virgin Mary to get rid of Putin and what they called a punk prayer. And so feminist uh, and, and, and feminist movement were definitely uh, part of the resistance to, to Putinist back then for a good reason, right? And uh, moreover, 2011-2012 was the sort of political crisis that showed Russia is, is, is ready for, for all kinds of, you know, democratic institutions and uh, elections and everything. People uh, wanted you know, change. They, they, they wanted a different president. And, and it was St. Petersburg, it was Moscow, the big cities, but also, you know, small towns, cities in, 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 in Siberia, all over Russia. People were protesting the very idea that the same guy can come back to the presidency when he didn't have the right to do so. You know, the very idea, the, the very idea when he announced that he's going around for the third time, which wasn't constitutional, people took to the streets and there were millions of them. I, you know, minus 20, minus 30, it didn't matter. They came in their thousands, the white ribbon opposition. Most of these people had never even been to a protest before this week. But after an election, demonstrators say was rigged in favor of Vladimir Putin's United Russia Party. Things have changed. People realize that they don't exist for the authorities. They want to show they do and that it's their country as well. We're here because we think we can change something in our country. When Putin realized and, and, and the government uh, in Kremlin, in general, realized that they cannot hold on to that power because people are against them. They started to rely on non-democratic tools to amass people's uh, support and legitimacy. And gay propaganda ban was, was definitely one of the most powerful tools in this regard. They offered a kind of emotional legitimization of their power by trying to trigger 
people's prejudice by trying to work with a kind of emotional dimension of uh, of our societies, right? And trying to recruit uh, people's homophobia and misogyny into their camp, they started to to use articulately uh, uh, homophobic rhetoric and misogyny and transphobic rhetoric uh, to to legitimize the, their own power. And Putin was uh, was very successful in this. St. Petersburg legislation was one of the most widely discussed. It was introduced in 2011, so exactly at the time of political crisis. And it worked there. It worked in St. Petersburg, which was considered the most, uh, you know, liberal, westernized city in Russia. It worked there for uh, for legitimization of power of homophobes and misogynists and fascists more generally without uh, democratic means. And so they just shifted uh, this employment of this cursive rhetorical tool to the federal level started to discuss it on the federal level in 2012. Once again, in another crisis, last year, in 2022, when Putin unleashed his uh, new kind of escalated uh, stage of war against Ukraine, people were not happy. And they were not happy to the point of 2011-2012 winter. Uh, they they were ready to go to the streets and and they they were ready to protest uh, the crazy idea of invading uh, a neighboring country uh, with which Russia shares so much history. And that's the point when the gay propaganda ban was introduced uh, to the public sphere once again in 2022. They started to discuss uh, amendments to the law and eventually, in November, December 2022, those amendments were um, adopted by the parliament and signed by Putin into law. And now this gay propaganda law, which covered just uh, so-called protection for children, right? They could not access information on LGBT issues. Now it covers the entire adult population in Russia. And as if it wasn't enough. In 2023, uh, Russian parliament, the state Duma, uh, introduced another uh, legislation prohibiting uh, sex reassignment surgery, prohibiting the change of documents uh, for transgender people and uh, taking away their right to custody of children, of their own children. So... That's more or less what um, the history of the invocation of, of the use of these uh, pieces of legislation for completely different uh, kind of reasons, not for the reason to regulate certain behavior, but for the reason to legitimize power, uh, misogynistic, homophobic power through non-democratic process. Yeah, that's so interesting. And it leads me to three I don't know if they're questions or observations. One, Putin's justifying this war in Ukraine by using this anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. And two, he's able to shore up his, his, his support in Russia. I mean, to the extent he is shoring up his support in Russia, I guess that's a question that's not fully answered yet. But, but he's able to do that by utilizing 
fear of LGBTQ people. And then three, or the other thing, is this works so well because there's just no more free press in Russia. And because, right, to some extent, he attacked the universities, the places that would have been able to do this sort of research that would have countered these narratives, right? So there's no counter narrative to his anti-gay rhetoric. So I guess that those aren't questions as much as observations. But I do want to ask, Sasha, why do you think it worked so well? Uh, it's It's impossible to say exactly, right? But my answer is that, you know, it resonates somehow in the society because we have to admit our societies across this world, not only Russia, but Russia including, are homophobic. There are many people in Russia who are homophobic, who are misogynist. So it resonates with them. And in the context where they cannot actually access alternative uh, knowledge, it resonates even better. So it, I guess it works, it does work, simply because there is that feeling in human being, the feeling of homophobia. And politicians like Putin, they just use it. They use our prejudices. They use our, um, uh, our biases, right? Our uh, fear of the other for their own gain, for their own goals. And people have no alternative uh, sources of uh, knowledge or any kind of information, not necessarily knowledge. There are no alternatives anymore. And that all happened within, you know, basically basically 10 years. Yeah, yeah, it's really frightening because I see similar attempts really around the world. So if you think about Florida right now, I don't know if you know what's going on in terms of Ron DeSantis, but, you know, he attack on gender studies, on, on black studies, on critical race theory. Um, he's attacking certain universities. He's trying to make tenure uh, contingent upon politicians approving the work you're doing. And all of this comes in this in this narrative that every, everything about black studies, gender studies, gay movements, that's all foreign to Florida. It doesn't belong there, right? That's the same as Russia, right? DeSantis says, Florida's where woke comes to die. We seek normalcy, not philosophical lunacy. We will not allow reality, facts, and truth to become optional. We will never surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. And you know, it's such a powerful way of controlling the population. I'm wondering if you, when you look at places like Florida or, or much of the southeastern United States and, and some of the middle of the U.S., when I see anti-abortion laws completely in effect, when I see anti-trans and anti-gay laws, how do we stop it? I mean, if you could give advice to our listeners, like what do we do to make sure that Kansas and, and Texas and Florida aren't the next Russia? How do we stop this from happening? First of all, we need to resist to all that. I mean, if there is still doubts in anyone that this is frivolous, that this is not uh, important, that, you know, uh, feminism uh, issues, feminist issues, LGBT rights, gender, these are kind of things that uh, don't matter that much. 
you are wrong. They matter. If you look at Russia, they matter to the point that they can justify a full-scale war where, you know, people are dying in numbers. If I could ever preach, this is my, my message, you know, anti-gender movement, anti-gender rhetoric even, anti-LGBT legislation. This is all part of a larger logic that leads to war and justification of the most terrible political regimes under which nobody wants to live because nobody is safe then. You know, so this is, this is that. We need to resist. To be honest, I, I, am, um, I am very pessimistic. And, but I, I, I don't want to share that pessimism actually with others. I want people to, yeah, to, to have um, hope, maybe. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm pessimistic too. But, but we're here at this moment, and at least in a few places, we can continue to fight back. I, I think what you just said about fighting back and, and not losing the knowledge that we don't know what the future will bring, and, and we, could, we could shape it. I don't know, that might not be optimism, but let's just say it's rational pessimism. Hopefully by now, you're convinced that the anti-gender ideology movement is a real threat. But before we tell you more about this movement, we need to take a huge detour. And that's because this entire movement is based on an understanding of the body, sex and gender as fixed and knowable. But the thing is, that's really not what the evidence shows. Medical science, anthropology, and history all indicate that the body is not quite as simple as the anti-gender ideology wants us to believe. If we are ever going to defeat fascism, we need to actually value facts and knowledge and listen to the experts who have been studying the relationship between the body and culture. So join us in episode three, where we talk to experts about sex, science, and some of the truly bizarre overlaps between the anti-gender ideology movement and trans-exclusionary feminism. Also, if you would like to check out the full version of the interviews with Professors Groff and Kondikoff, you can find them at Spotify or go to our website at tinyurl.com slash feminism, fascism, future. That's tinyurl.com slash feminism, fascism, future. I want to thank Agnieszka Groff and Alexander Kondikoff for contributing to this episode. My colleague, Professor Catherine Wright, who helped conduct the interviews. Also, Harper Nichols for all things production and editorial. Julian Siegerried for making magic with sound mixing and engineering. And finally, Allison Seeger who is the executive producer of this podcast, which is just a fancy way of saying the person who gets everything done from editing to sound to keeping me sane. So, you know, here we go again. This is where we need that theme song. Have you come up with anything better than last time? I really hope so. Yeah, not really. How about you, got any ideas? Well, I was sitting outside the local food co-op today 
And like this little jingle came in my head. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Feminism, fascism, and the future. What do you think? That was good. You think? No, you're just being nice. Well, it's better than last week. That's true. That's okay. true.